I don't know what inferior swill this is, but I ordered a lot of hula. The scotch on the rocks, please. Any scotch will do, as long as it's not a blend, of course. Uh, single malt, Glenlivet, Glenfiddich, perhaps, maybe a Glengow, any Glen. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. We get literally thousands upon thousands of single malt tourists coming here. They come from all over the world just to set foot on Isla. To study it. No, to drink it. Welcome to the Whiskey Snobs of Lower Moco podcast. My name is Aaron. And I'm Adam. And I'm Jesse. And today we're going to be tasting the Port Charlotte MP8, a micro-provenance tasting from the Brooklady Distillery. A very exciting tasting, wouldn't you say? I, I would say so for sure. This has been a long time coming. It had a little bit of a delay in releasing the MP8s from the NP7, so it's pretty exciting. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think we might want to start from the beginning and kind of explain what MP series is, because uh, we're referring to MP8, which obviously means there have been seven before this, but uh, it is kind of a unique program, I think. I've never heard of any other one like it. So the Brooklady Distillery has been releasing these micro-provenance series, starting with MP1, and then we're all the way up to MP8 now. I picked up on these right around MP4. That was the first one that I was able to get. And basically, it's three single-cask bottlings at about 200 milliliters apiece, uh, sold as a set, and it's... I forget how many sets they usually put out. Maybe it's like 3,000? Something like that. And they're all meant to be... An exploration in a particular, you know, whether it's cask influence, whether it's a barley type, it, right. uh, and they they vary. And there's been you know a lot of very interesting tastings, and the distillery's done a good job about broadcasting their live stream of these tastings uh, for fans to watch and taste along with them. And it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it's a really cool series, and you know, because they always choose one of their lines and because they have multiple lines. They've got the Brook Lottie proper line, which is unpeated, and they had the Port Charlotte, which is uh, peated, uh, heavily peated to 40 uh, phenol parts per million, and then the Octomore, which is the ultra peated or extreme peated at like 160 plus uh, phenol parts per million. And they always, you know, so whenever there are any of the sets, it's always one of those three, and then some kind of variable uh, within that, differentiates the three so you can kind of see well, what is the influence of a certain type of barley or a certain type of cask um and you know i'll say right now that i mean i think they're they're obviously going to be good whiskeys but i think they're almost more educational than uh entertainment i mean i think they're they're the point of it really is to uh you know educate you as to you know what the um inputs are because even when you buy something like a brook lottie 10 year old even though that's a single malt it's still going to be a blend of different casks that they've used some might have bourbon you know aging some might have sherry uh ex-sherry cask aging and you know they'll still blend those together to create a single malt so i think what they're trying to do with these is to show you the components uh that will eventually make their way into yeah and i think it's important to note that they they absolutely are each of these bottles are single casks and while they're all very interesting on their own, the, I don't think there's been one in the, uh, this will now be the my fourth MP tasting. There hasn't really been one that's been, well, there's been very few that would be like, oh, I wish that was, yeah, I could buy a whole 750 milliliter bottle of. They're all very interesting in their own right, but 
they're not necessarily as well-rounded as some other single casks and certainly not as well-rounded as some other just regular single malt offerings. Of the ones that I've tried, there's one exception to that, which was the Octomore uh, MP6 release, where one of them was a really special uh, cask uh, because they did it. Uh, one of their earlier Octomore releases was codenamed uh, Orpheus and is kind of legendary. And what they did was they took a leftover cask from that and, and aged it even further in a, kind of an obscure wine <clears throat> cask, a Ribera del Duero. And I mean, I agree, it still probably wouldn't have made it very, you know, a sense, a lot of sense as a, as a, as a you know, marketed release. It was a little bit unusual, but damn, it was tasty. I mean, it was really, really good on its own. And you felt like it actually was really valuable because it was so unique. Yeah. And what was the other interesting thing about the, that particular Octomore Farm MP series was that they had a Reeve Salt uh, cask influenced. Uh, Octomore in that one, which was, I think many people were saying that it was a little bit funky. So I'm very interested to see how the Port Charlotte Reef Salt is going to come out. Yeah, Adam, do you want to tell us about the three uh, releases in this MP series? Yeah, so what we've got is we've got two bourbon matured and one Reef Salt matured uh, spirits here. The first one that we'll likely try is probably the Oxbridge Barley, Oxbridge and Publican, uh, which is a six-year-old spirit that was aged in a first-fill bourbon barrel. There is another, they also provide information on the warehouse, but I think, you know, only the most obsessed whiskey enthusiast is really going to get into the warehouse location that these are aged in and the impact of, uh, on the spirit. Uh, then there's also a first-fill bourbon nine-year-old spirit, and lastly, there's a second-fill reef salt a nine-year-old spirit that we're looking at. And I think Jesse mentioned earlier that, you know, Brooklady is one of the only distilleries to really do this type of release. And, and they certainly uh, have kind of um, uh, made their way here. But I, Buffalo Trace also has had an experimental uh, True, collection yeah. that they released, but they haven't done it in as organized and as a methodical fashion, I don't think. Or maybe they have, but not with the fanfare that, that Brooklady has where Brooklady connects the releases to these live tastings, as Aaron mentioned, and people get together as a community, even virtually, to taste and, um, and to, to comment on the different uh, influences of the uh, maturation effect. Yeah, I think I've seen those before. That's a good call, the Buffalo Trace Experimental Series. But I think I believe those are even harder to get your hands on. I mean, yeah. even though these kind of create a frenzy and you have to log on at the day uh, of the release, at least they kind of publicly announced that they gave yeah. everybody an opportunity to do that. So I think that is where, you know, they're self-consciously, you know, selling, they do sell them, but I think it is more of a, uh, again, it, to me, it's more of a whole, like they're not making this as a commercial product. Right. They're right. not trying to sell this on the open market. This is but for it, it also, it also fans. feels a lot more like a, a two way participatory experience where the uh, distillery is opening itself up to the fans and to the community and, I remember that I think it was the MP6 live tasting that that I listened to and watched, and you know James Brown was there, and uh, there was a, a, a distillery uh, employee there who was talking about uh, the background of the releases, and there were fans in attendance, and people were sitting around watching it, and people were commenting online about what they thought about the releases, and I don't know that you see that with any other distillery bourbon or stuff. yeah. And it's ironic because they're on such a remote part of a remote island in a remote country 
you know, so they joke about how their internet connection is really poor. Uh, so they are really aggressive in trying to do these online sales and then these like online live tastings, but they like fully admit that they have a really hard time getting a solid internet broadband connection. Every time they do these, there's always people posting the pictures of the website crashing yeah. or just the little Brooklady logo spinning on the screen. It's, it's very comical. And I think for me, it took about two and a half hours of hitting reload to try to get in and then when I was in, I was in this uh, weird payment loop thing where I kept on going to PayPal and then going back to the Brooklady yeah. and then back and over again. It was it was a big. So you paid for these five times. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, which was a common experience, judging by the Facebook comments from folks uh, who attempted to buy a bottle or a set, and some were successful. I guess before we really jump in, let's just say for the for the record that we are doing our tasting before the live stream, so we don't have any influence from that tasting. We will be posting this episode after the live. The live stream. Uh, just, and then why are we posting it after the live stream? Uh, just to make sure that nobody finds what we're doing unwholesome. And um, <laughs> not to give out any spoilers or anything. You know, not that I consider myself a uh, premier whiskey taster and giving away a lot of you know spoilers about it. But I want to stay in the spirit of the tasting. I'm not going to be in country for the live stream, so. Yeah, this is a good way to just kind of do it and, you know, get all of us together and do what whiskey was meant to do. And there's a little bit more of a story around that that maybe we'll talk about after we get. Yeah. Why don't we talk about that after uh, maybe at least our first glass, you know, while we're savoring our first. So as always, we will be doing all of our tastings out of Glencairn glasses. And uh, we're going to start with the uh, cask. 1860, which is the Oxbridge Publican Barley, distilled June 1st, 2011, six years old, first fill of bourbon, and clocking in at 61.4% ABV. Wow, what a nose. I mean, that's the first thing that strikes me right off the bat. Yeah, the color is always a great place to start, but and this is uh, a kind of a uh, light gold, I'd say, maybe. kind of. I wouldn't call it just straw, maybe a little bit darker than that. Somewhere between like straw and like a corn. Corn, yeah, that's probably a good call. You know, as always, Brooklady doesn't color any of their whiskeys. Um, would not make any sense at all with a release like this. But you always know with Brooklady or Port Charlotte or Octomore that what you see is what you get. So it's, it's you can definitely smell the ABV. It's pretty intense, I think. I mean, uh, you know, we poured these just a few minutes before we started recording, and so they've only been sitting here for yeah about ten minutes, maybe at most. But I feel like this would like really benefit from you know some time to air out and let the alcohol vapors. Uh, uh, burn off a little bit. It's it's funny. Aaron shared a a really nice tasting sheet. I think that was prepared by uh, Whiskey Geek, uh, who runs a, a YouTube channel with reviews. Uh, some really good reviews too. And I'm looking at the the helpful uh, color chart that he included on the tasting sheet. And this color is really somewhere between a a, a manzanilla and a, a vingris. Is that um, what I'm looking at? It's it's not quite. Uh, it's not quite completely. Clear, but it is definitely less than a straw or a uh, you know, Crayola 128 crayon box, I think. I would anyway. say it's closer to the Manzanilla uh, shade number two. One of the things that I think is interesting about looking at the color of, of a spirit is that traditionally it, it is intended, if it's not colored, to give you a sense of both the age uh, and the barrel type. And so here, this is clearly an ex-bourbon barrel. The fact that it's First fill is a little surprising to me because it's it is so light. I would almost expect this to be a second fill bourbon, but it, it at only 
it only right at only six years I, I think that all makes sense and that adds up and that to me is one of the benefits of of not coloring not using e150 uh, in a whiskey is it allows the the uh, the consumer to kind of get a sense of the backstory of the whiskey just by visual cues but you know what what i'm getting in this maybe way off base is that this is a really clean spry spirit it's bouncing around in the glass it's not sticking to the walls it's you know i i'd spin the glass and kind of twirl the whiskey in it and it's moving around really nicely also anybody picking up any particular notes on the nose before we move into the palate well, to me, you know, it's always a question of whether I would get it right on a blind tasting. But to me, you know, knowing that it's Port Charlotte, I detect that familiar Port Charlotte smell, which is kind of, to me, a farminess, a, you know, smoked meat kind of uh, smell. Sweet, but also kind of earthy and slightly sour. I, I, I get the light peat. You know, this is uh, something that I would put in the, you know, I know Port Charlotte is, what is it? It's like a 50 ppm? 40. 40, 40 Lock ppm. Locking dolls 50. I would almost consider this Callister ish or Highland Park ish in terms of the lower level of, of peating that I'm getting on the nose. But it's also more of a, I want to say, Balakin kind of rubbery peat. I don't get a lot of, I don't get a lot of brine on this. I don't get a lot of saltiness. I don't get a lot of iodine that you would expect from something like a Lafroig or an Art Bag. So, you know, I think in a blind tasting, I would clearly be able to pick this out as not one of those. I'm definitely getting some of that earthy grassiness and a little bit of the smoked meats you were talking about. That kind of comes in on kind of the end of the nose a little bit. It's sort of refreshing. Yeah, no, it is. It's it's very like outdoorsy. You feel yeah. like you're, you're, you know, this this would almost be a spirit really to savor out outside. Yeah, a good summer sipper or something. Yeah. Well, let's move right into the palate. Wow. Definitely feels a little hot. Yeah, do we have yeah. water on the table or we don't, we don't have a dropper? I did not bring a dropper. I can go grab one. No, no, I think it's, but this is something that I would, I would add a little this water need, to. Yeah, yeah this, this is a little heavy on the, uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very intense and flavorful. And, but not, but not overpowering, almost, but it, there is no, there's an alcohol. That first, right. the first pull was a little overpowering. Yeah. I think maybe the second one might uh, tone down. But I mean, that's to me, it's like, you know, exhibit A for my thesis on these, which is, you know, that it's more about education than it is like kind of present itself as, you know, a refined commercial product. I mean, I think this is kind of rough around the edges and they would use this as one component with other older whiskeys that, you know, could balance it out. And obviously they lower the ABV uh, for like any of their standard Port Charlotte releases, which are usually at 50%. Yeah. So now we, we haven't gotten to the finish yet, but you know, I, it, it feels like the right time to ask when we were talking about ratings earlier, before we started the, um, the recording, one of the facets of that is, would you buy this again or not? And, so thinking about this spirit, this is this is enjoyable, but would I buy this if it, as Aaron said, came in a 750 milliliter bottle? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I think, again, except for that one Octomore that I, I mentioned, I mean, the answer is usually no on these. And so that's why I almost think it's not right to give this a rating. Right. You know, because it's not trying to, you know, compare itself to any of the other uh, standard releases or special releases that are kind of commercial products. Well, we maybe will, you know, obviously compare against the other, um, the sibling expressions in yeah. the set. Yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking about the finish now that um, we've been talking about that. And, and I, it's a kind of a, a nice, short, punchy finish to me. It's not too long, 
but it makes its presence known. It kind of the the heat kind of comes back at the end, which is oh, kind yeah. of fun yeah. and interesting. Kind of on the sides and in the back of my mouth. Yeah, but it, it doesn't linger. It doesn't linger. I think I've been um, focused more these days on that. It's an artificial distinction between the palette and the finish. You know. It's this like binary thing, like, oh, the palette ends and then you get the finish. I mean, you know, definitely a continuum. It's a continuum. And yep. I wish there were better ways to describe, you know, the evolution of a whiskey as, you know, it, it starts to the front of your mouth and moves towards the back and everything. It's and, and what's funny is that some people talk about the back of the palate or the front of the palate. Yeah. Which yeah. I, I sort of get too. It's just kind of that initial impression that you have that sits in your mouth. And the finish I tend to think of is after I've swallowed. What am I still experiencing? What am I still taking? Yeah, I think, you know, that's maybe a terminology I should refer to because I, I find that a lot or, you know, I'll often say like, well, you know, it starts really strong and flavorful, but like halfway through the palate, it kind of falls apart, you know, or, you know, that I find that about a lot of whiskeys. Like, so I, I can't say that it's, you know, the palate versus the finish. I kind of say like beginning of the palate versus right. the middle of the palate versus the end of the palate can can change a lot some really start like weak and get stronger others start strong and really fade quickly and and then the finish is a totally different experience like you said it's like after you swallow right very early on in my whiskey journey finish was more of a statement of how long it was right not necessarily picking up notes in it and as my tasting capability increased i was able to kind of make some sort of a distinction and i think what you just said about that taste that lingers after it's no longer present. Right. I think that's probably a really good signifier of what is the finish. Yeah, and certainly some some drams that you'll sit with outside, as Jesse mentioned, uh, and you'll have a sip, you'll swish it around, you'll swallow it, and five minutes later, you can still feel it in the back of your throat or in the roof of your mouth. And that's, you know, that's kind of nice, especially when you're looking up at the trees and watching the birds yeah. and butterflies. Yeah. You know, I, well, I just want to say one last thing, because I think it's funny just to talk about our own approach, I think, in this podcast. I think we are much less about kind of giving very detailed tasting notes about what kind of specific things we're smelling or tasting. And I think we're more about the experience yeah. and kind of commenting on the whiskey. This may not be the world's best guide to someone who wants to know, like, how exactly does this taste? Um, but uh, maybe we can do that a little bit too, kind of pick out particular notes, but... Sure. But there's a community of people out there who yeah. have never tasted burnt banana in their in their <laughs> trance and are interested in knowing, you know, how intense is that finish going to be and is it going to linger? And so we speak to those members of the... Yeah, the burnt banana is pretty good, actually, now that you say that. I'm very suggestible. And <laughs> now I'm getting burnt banana. Uh, I mean, and like pencil shavings is another yeah. one that came to mind. It's yeah. like yeah. just kind, kind of, of that woodiness, dry, woody, but also a little metal from the, the pointy lead. tip. But um, and then uh, and the, to me, the finish is like is where the peat really is um, a little bit more ashy. To me, yeah. I feel like it's got that kind of. Yeah, I think ashy is a good descriptor uh, for the yeah. peat on this one. So do we, we want to see what yeah. three years adds? To yeah, let's do that. And then maybe we can come back and discuss the differences we see between the two because it's interesting this is three years but it's also a different barley this is optic barley where the first one was oxbridge and publican barley yeah. right right so this is the cask 3403 distilled november 25th 2008 and bottled nine years later in 2018 first fill bourbon and it was bottled at cash strength 61.4 percent so tell me again the difference between the abvs 
So the first one we did, actually both of these are 61.4%. Amazing. Because this one, to me, the nose is way less uh, alcohol forward. I mean, it's really um, not nearly as yeah. as intense. And you know, that's kind of amazing. It's a how, little more how, mellow, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when they're the exact same ABV, you know, what is it that is creating... But like, so, is, so is it that additional three years of just sitting in the barrel and maybe mellowing out a little bit that is causing that? Or, or is it the fact that it was aged in warehouse 13 instead of warehouse 16 <laughs> yeah but i mean it's, it's like one of these other little uh you know mysteries that i think would be interesting to be- better understand because what if, what happens in those three years that i mean if the alcohol content is the same it's not actually losing any abv Which then is, what is it are there just certain compounds i guess that you know but we don't know to what extent these were cut before bottle do we we cut with what Cut with water. Oh, no. I mean, there must... I can't imagine that. When they get down to decimal point percentages, the likelihood is they haven't cut it at all. Yeah. No, they they can still cut it. They can still cut it, but but if they're going to cut it, they generally do to a whole number. Plus, I don't think they cut it like when they blend... The single malt. I mean, these are single cast releases. I think that's something we should look into and add to the show notes. Because I know, for example, Ardbeg does a lot of releases that are 46.2 or 48.3 or whatever. That um, Yeah, but with the whole like notion of this release being kind of scientific and not commercial, I mean, I... I don't think they cut these with water. I mean, I think they really are. I mean, if the whole point of this is to kind cast of explore strength, but cast. It's surprising that they don't put cast strength on this. Yeah, but I almost think it's got to be it's a given. It's a really small it's like label. Cask, they call it cask evolution exploration. It's a small label, but look at how much you know, they devote to Microprovident Series single, single cask, cask evolution exploration, Isla single malt scotch whiskey, compare and contrast. Why, why would they add water just to get it to 61.4%? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think that they're adding water to get it to a certain percentage, but I think they add water to get it to a certain profile. Or uh, getting to it get to a certain to, number of... Uh, Kits released, or to get to a certain yeah, number. No, of kits I, released. I, I would. But I'll just, I'll just say that I'm very surprised, uh, as I think Aaron is as well, that you have two bottles uh, or two barrels. One is aged three years longer than the other at the exact same ABV. Yeah. Oh, and the third one is uh, what well, was the, is the third? If the third one is at sixty one point four, then yeah, sixty two. Sixty twenty six. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it's definitely a good question to ask. Maybe they will address that on the live stream. Well, yeah. by the time this is released, maybe we wasted an enormous amount of time talking about something that has been so, clarified. So I would say that the extra three years, you definitely pick up a little bit more of the bourbon cask influence with this one. It's got a little bit more of a sweetness on the nose. Yeah, the whole I, it's thing. It's a little lighter. Certainly is, a little lighter. Yeah, I mean, to jump nose. ahead a little bit to the, the, the palate, I mean, Ooh. the whole thing is so much more approachable and have you, have you done a side-by-side nosing with the, uh, the six-year-old? It's completely yeah, different no, in terms of level of intensity. Yeah, and I'm, I'm getting very similar on the palate. I mean, I, I'd say the nose is somewhat similar in terms of, you know, notes. Right, But right. Uh, it's just more, more mellow. Burn and it's, yeah, less burn. Yeah, it's more rounded. It's, yeah. The finish is a lot shorter. Hmm. On the nine-year-old. On well, the nine-year-old. That's hmm. what I'm getting out of it. Nine-year-old's still a little hot. It is a little, it's definitely still hot. I mean, at 61.4, I'd be shocked if it wasn't. I mean, there are some that are out there that aren't, that are like amazingly you know, drinkable at uh, 60 plus percent. But usually that's when you feel it regardless. But um, yeah, more lemon, I think, on this nine-year, more kind of uh, a little bit more citrus, a little yeah. more like herbal to me. I mean, um, I'm not getting a lot of flavors out of I- either of these ex-bourbons. They're... They're 
clean, crisp. They come across as ex-bourbon, but... That's the thing is I'm getting mostly ex-bourbon notes out of this. Like you get a little right. bit of like a hint of vanilla. You get a little bit of... Very similar to bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> so a, like It's a pretty narrow profile. It's a, Yeah, and yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like there, there's, there's nothing standout-ish about these. Right, right. Which, you know, so I wonder, is having two ex-bourbons like this as a build-up, as a lead-in to the Resalt, which is a, a sweeter wine... Right, like a more uh, lesser well-known dessert wine. Right, right. So it could be really interesting to see that contrast. You really do get way more of that bourbon influence on this one than the six-year-old. It does round it out nicely. The alcohol burn is not quite the same as the first one. It's a little bit more muted. But I I think I actually prefer the finish on this one, which um, it's a little more, there's something, there's more of a zing to the finish on the nine-year-old. Yeah. The other thing that we're not talking about, though, which is maybe as best as they try to isolate certain variables so you can kind of see what the influence is yeah uh you know the other difference is this um barley type and we really like i think we're gonna we have a harder time differentiating that i mean uh but but the barley type i would imagine has quite an influence in terms of uh i mean just flavor but i i think like mouthfeel is a big one where the barley you know uh is so frequently associated with giving uh like a thick round Whole mouthfeel. And, and I think that was the point of the previous MP tasting, the MP7, which was the Isle of Barleys. And right. it was different farms. So we knew what farm and what the type of barley was. And what I thought was interesting about that one was that it wasn't that they were all the same age, or I, I, mean, I think they were even slightly different cast types. Hmm. I don't quite remember. But you would think that if, if you're doing a cask exploration to see what either what the cask influence does versus what the barley type does, you would try to keep all the other variables somewhat the same. Yeah. I, I just, you know, I, I'm a skeptic here, and I just can't believe that barley, different varieties of barley, have that much influence on the final flavor profile of a whiskey after you're talking about fermentation, distillation, maturation. It, I, in my opinion, it would be wiped out, and I, I would love to see a straight comparison where all the other variables are held constant except for the barley type. But when you look at the barley type from an operational standpoint, it has much more to do with crop yield and with hardiness and disease resilience and that sort of thing. You know, I I wonder why they they put this emphasis on the barley type here. It must be because they think that there's some influence. I think that they do. I mean, their whole kind of... I wouldn't, I think shtick is pejorative, but I think that, you know, one of their calling cards is this micro provenance and terroir. And there's a big debate about terroir. That is to them, I think what they're referring to is, you know, the fact that they know these specific farms, grow specific types of barley. I mean, the fact that they have ones that are Scottish barley, so they're not grown on Isla, and then they have Isla barley releases that are grown on Isla. I mean, I've always thought that those two taste quite different. If you look at the Brooklady website, they also make a big deal out of their long swan neck. You know, what that contributes to. So you just have to do the math. I mean, they, they say time in the barrel adds, what, 60 to 80 percent? Is it 50 to 70 percent of the flavor of the final product? And then you get into the distillation and then you get into the fermentation. And, you know, you start to add all those percentages up. How much is left for the barley to have a detectable influence on the taste of the final product? I think that's always such a, a funny metric that you hear a lot. The percentage <laughs> of the flavor. I agree. I agree. <laughs> you know, so you know, like, I said it with quotes. Yeah, 50% of this flavor comes from, you know, I mean, 
to some degree, they're, right. they're, they're addressing different things. I think also if we come back to the idea of like a continuum, which is really more three-dimensional too, because then like what do you, how do you account for mouthfeel and that kind of, you know, and that's what, again, I, I'm thinking that barley, you know, might, it might not be the flavor uh, as much as it is kind of the texture. Oh, right. You know, maybe that's yeah. the difference. Um so, uh, yeah, it would be great to, to isolate it even further. But so, what, you know, so you, you wonder why would Brooklotti, so they're all poor Charlotte, which really speaks more to the PPM than anything else, but why would they vary? You know, so on two of these, you have the same uh, maturation type or, or barrel type, ex, first fill ex bourbon, but you have different years, you have different warehouse locations. You have different barley type. Potentially, you have different fermentation times. So it's it's really difficult to then say, okay, well, a difference is due to this one factor. We just right. don't know. Yeah. Well, all we know is that the combination of those variables results in this final product. Yeah. Yeah. So how much do you think these differences, whether it's like the length of the neck, the, the yeast know, strain, the yeast strain, all that, how much of that is just for whiskey geeks to just say, oh, those things make a difference? Well, at the end of the day, it, it's how you what you think of the spirit so if you like it or you don't like it you like it a lot you like it a little etc we pay attention to it because i think it helps us it helps guide us in our future decision making about what to consume and what to buy more of or what to look out for and so i think it's useful from from that standpoint certainly but it is frustrating that there are so many variables and yet you have folks in the whiskey community who obsess over one variable and that's the, an age statement on the bottle it's ridiculous yeah that's a fantastic point no i mean that's and i think this is like a great series that can help enlighten people to get away from that one thing i mean i think uh to me the nine year is definitely better uh you know i think it's more approachable more drinkable it's more enjoyable I still though i mean if your initial test i would not buy a, a bottle, a of, bottle this. of this probably for what they would sell it for but you know and so what's interesting about that statement is that it's not necessarily a damning one that's not you're not damning this with faint praise brook lottie and other distilleries put out such great whiskeys that if you have a consumer choice between this and a pc11 or something else you're going to choose something else yeah and like i said not saying this is bad but I, i'm not going to go and buy a bottle of it i mean like would I buy it if it was $40? Yeah. yeah. I think I could yeah. spend 40 bucks a different way and get more, more enjoyment out of it. I'm not going to say this is not complex, but to me, there's not enough going on here that night after night, I yeah. would reach for this bottle and want to sit. And In some ways, I kind of feel like a, an ex-bourbon cask of anything has only so much to offer. And th this doesn't have any some other things to it that is drawing me to it. Right. Yeah. Like, I think that's it, a good it point. It could yeah. have more to it, and it just doesn't. Right. So with that, should we take a dive into let's, the yeah, Reeves salt? The... So ah. let's uh, let's talk about this Reeves salt. So the, this ah. is... Oh, wow. Oh. Sorry, I know. Getting We're ahead of the gun. Go ahead. Finish. Oh, your... wow. Yeah, no, yeah. I see what you're saying. Wow. The, the, the nose on this seems I'm, I'm getting exciting. nail polish in a good way. Yeah. Caramel-flavored nail polish. This Definitely fruity. So anyway... Um, so this is Oxbridge Barley. This particular bottling was distilled December 1st, 2008. Nine years old. Second fill Reeve Salt. Warehouse 6-L17. Bottled at 62.6%. And we're really kind of enjoying this nose. It's really exciting. Well, any kind of wine or sherry finished 
spirit is going to have a little bit more, I think, of an immediate personality and one that's more easily identifiable where you sort of pick up some of those fruit notes and it's a little more cloying and I don't say that in a bad way. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just, you know, Googling reef salt. I'm not getting anything like terribly enlightening. I mean, it's a sweet fortified wine made in the Languedoc Roussillon wine region of France. So speaking of barley, I I didn't realize that Golden Promise is actually a barley type, and so I wonder if that's uh, the source of the name of the uh, world-renowned whiskey bar in Paris. I would think so. That's That's a pretty good guess. So I guess while we're on that topic, so this one, color wise, in the bottle has a lot more red to it than it is in the glass, Mm -hmm. which is really kind of interesting. It's more in the gold amber color. It's just a lot richer than the two bourbon casks. Yeah, I mean, I would put it as like a Chardonnay or maybe a um, you know, turn color if, if you're looking at the color chart from Whiskey Geek. It's like almost zesty. It's like definitely you get, more get some fruit. sweet, get fruits. And on yeah. the palate, I think just to finish our conversation about barley, this does share barley types with the first one we had. Oxbridge, although the one first one was Oxbridge slash Publican. But yeah, I mean, I'd have no way of, you know, unless you just kind of like yeah, gave right. me some Oxbridge to chew on and, you know, what it what it tastes like. Uh, I think it's pretty hard. I wonder if anyone can us up with some Oxbridge. Oxbridge, yeah. yeah. But this one, I you know, uh-huh. moving past the nose and into the palate, I think it's, it's a much more pleasant tasting spirit on the palate. It has a little more activity. Um, it's the, the most exciting one in the set by far. I don't know, though. I mean, I'd probably be... I don't know. I guess it's the most interesting, but I also, I, it's not to my liking. I think it's um, a little bitter, like, even though it's a sweet wine, I find sometimes with wine finishes, it creates, a, it ends up tasting sourish and bitter yeah. to me. Like, it doesn't yeah. really mix that yeah, well. Yeah, I get that same bitterness, yeah. that same kind of, I, I can't pick up the right word, but almost... I get almost like sourness. a wine that's kind of a little past its prime. Yeah. It, yeah, it may not be in my wheelhouse, but given the intensity of the palate and the finish for this particular expression, it for someone who enjoys this type of um, release, I would certainly recommend it. If this is the kind of thing you like, you're really you're gonna, gonna like this, gonna kind, of like this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, um, well, it's, it's just unfortunate that I don't I don't love this taste but if i did having that kind of stronger palate impact and that kind of more lasting lingering finish i i would enjoy this a lot i would probably and buy it this could be a component in like a black art type which bottling. is an incredible point that no one's brought up and i really wonder why it hasn't been brought up is you look at these you compare and compra- contrast but no one's talked about blending them yeah oh actually creating your own blend of the three well taking the three and saying you know i like Certain facets to this, certain facets to this, certain facets to this. In what ratio, What in what combination would these taste hmm. at a level that is greater than the sum of the parts? Yeah, well, let's make our own. <laughs> I'm going to mix the three right now and see what you get. But, um, no, I mean, I, I have a very similar impression to, uh, to Aaron. You know, if you look at the new release of Port Charlotte 10, or any of the releases of prior Port Charlotte 10s, they've all been a mix of a lot of different cast types. You know, they, like, at least four or five or six and one of them is usually wine you know it may only be like eight nine percent or something low that but you know this would add a lot of character in balance with other like bourbon or sherry uh, you can't see this over the recording but i'm kind of making faces at jesse because i i actually i i just poured the two into this glass into the glass of the third and i love it it's like unlocking the hidden key 
This is like the Easter egg in the MV8. So I, I haven't gotten there yet, but I, I'm just yeah, kind of totally. I'm kind of just come up with some impressions on the Reef Salt Cask one before combining them because that does seem like kind of fun. It I would agree with the Whiskey Geeks assessment of this one. The impression you get from the nose is completely turned on its head when you go to the palate. What you're expecting out of it when you're nosing it is not what you get when you so taste is, it. is that unbalanced or is that misaligned? I feel, I feel like that makes it exciting. Like huh? okay. I feel like like when I can be so shocked. A twist at, in the yeah, story. I like the twist in it. I like the fact that it can give me a little bit of a, of a surprise. You know, like a little bit of an Easter egg to find yeah. in it. Because if it tastes exactly the way it noses, then it's kind of like okay, well then that's not kind of a one. Well, or like yeah, it's kind of it's a one trick pony. Whereas I like the fact that this has a, a second layer to yeah. it. That's that's a really great point, you know, because and maybe we'll save our discussion of ratings and critics for another day. But um, the fact that like another reviewer, you know, Jim Murray or somebody who kind of deducts points for flaws might say that that's a flaw, you know, but then that's coming a lot of people from a like, yeah, but I mean that. But then Aaron's point is, I think, a yeah. really strong one, too. And it just really goes to the whole personal preference and on a very deep level, like someone might deduct like a whole two percent you know five percentage points because it misaligned where someone you might give it five so so i'll give you a great example of where that same situation would be the complete opposite for me coffee smells amazing but it doesn't taste the way it smells if they could make coffee the beverage taste the way it smells it would be (laughs) mind-blowing No, but, I agree but, but I think it, it speaks Fresh to how, how subjective amazing. the entire tasting experience is, where one person might want to have that consistency of the nose and the palate being in alignment, and another person may be nicely surprised by a change. In- uh, has everybody else just combined all of yep. those together? Yeah, and it really made an interesting pour. What really stuck out to me when combining them was the finish was leveled out. It yeah. wasn't just like this bump in the road. It was very unified yeah that yeah. Was, that's I'll, I'll be shocked if they do the live tasting and this is the kicker <laughs> <laughs> i know blend these together that would be funny yeah. but i yeah i kind of i mean you know to some degree if they're again if it's the education is to say okay these three whiskeys don't really taste in the individual one like something worth writing home writing home about but you know blend the three together and you're getting you know these different parts that start to balance each other out yeah Yeah. and like i'm sure that we each had different proportions but it seems like we're getting very similar effects from the different um blendings yeah it's just it's i've never thought to do that with any of the other cask explorations i'm kicking myself for not having thought i can't believe we didn't do this before (laughs) it it just seems like such a natural on the shelf i have the uh the mp6 octomore series which may be that one because there's that weird funky one and then that the really uh interesting uh Right. Uh, they had a reef salt and then this had a reef salt and, one yeah, and a like bourbon one. Maybe that one would be interesting to kind of just pour into one glass and see yeah, what happens. Yeah, let's see. So I guess we should wrap things up. It's been a, a bit of a long discussion, but a really interesting one. And we should uh, thank our host, Aaron, for procuring these, uh, spending two and a half hours, uh, refreshing. Refresh, I'm, refresh. <laughs> I was so, still getting work you. done. Yes. Oh, oh yeah, see, we were being Oh, okay. It was he from was like working. nine. It, well, and what was funny was that I saw the email an, an hour after 
the sales launched. I was like, crap, I'm screwed. I'm not going to get yeah. in on this. And I'm, I know there were people that were trying that were much more local to the distillery yeah. that couldn't get in. I was on a like eight hour flight home from Europe. And so, you know, the whole period of time when you got that email and logged on and everybody on Facebook freaked out, you know, it was one of those great things where I land and suddenly I get all these messages of like <laughs> everything that happened. I was like, damn, I just missed this whole thing. It worked, anyway. out, it worked out fine for you because <laughs> so, like that, it was stressful, but like it all worked out. I was very happy to have gotten the set. It's been a lot of fun. It might even be in the top two of the tastings that I've done. Uh, I find that the, the peated ones just kind of speak to me a little more than the Brooklady non-peated series. So th- this to me ranks right up there. I'm disappointed I did not get the MP5, which was the other Port Charlotte. That would be awesome. I wish I could have. Uh, I think at that point I was like, well, I just got the MP4. I don't need to get the MP5. It's blah, blah, yeah. blah. That, that was a stupid mistake. But yeah, th- this was a lot of fun. I'm glad I got to share this with you guys and, yeah, and, you. and record it. Yes. Again, I wouldn't have thought to throw them all into one glass. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great idea. We're not going to try to rate these, all right? No, I think we maybe should. No, yeah. but we, we, we did essentially rate them in a buy, don't buy yeah. fashion. Okay. So no buy in all three, but buy the blend. Buy the blend. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I guess that'll do it for this episode of the Whiskey Snobs of Lower Moco podcast. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And dram in good health. I must say, damn good stuff, sir.